benefited from his teaching and his excellent communication, which I've always found it so refreshing. And here it stimulates us and helps us. So I've, I, I'm really pleased that he's with us. And he's come over from Southampton. He was in Trondheim a week ago at an outreach at the university. And he said something. He knows we can. Chatting to him, you can ask him about it. And uh, we will get a chance to chat to each other. And there are some here who are not always with us. You're especially welcome. But if you want to come and sign up for next September, <laughs> you're more than welcome. These are little tasting occasions uh, for the life of that. But let's pray and then we'll let Peter start this evening. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you made us in such a fashion that we have minds and think, reason. We have hearts that can be moved, stirred, our wills, we can love you by giving ourselves to a time like this where we apply our minds to think and wrestle with questions in our contemporary world. And we pray for Peter. We ask for your help and grace to be with him and your spirit will guide and use him and anoint him among us this weekend. And we pray for all of us, Lord. We know we come from a busy week at work and maybe a busy day at work. But we pray that you would stir us in our hearts and stimulate us in our minds that we will really benefit this evening for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Peter, we're in your hands now. I'm going to switch on this. Uh, technology. I'm, I've got belt and braces going here as well, so uh, hopefully between us we shall uh, get something up on the uh, tinterweb uh, of this material. So, it's delightful to uh, be here for the first uh, time I've visited Northern Ireland and the first time I've visited this hotel, therefore, that follows. And uh, to have opportunity uh, to spend time with you and to have various uh, sessions of input with you over this weekend. And then I'm doing a, a preach at uh, Port Rush Church on Sunday morning before hopefully I get to fly back home, depending on what the beast from the east storm does to Southampton Airport. You know, if a snowflake falls on it, they'll have to shut it down because uh, we can't cope. Uh, you'll find um, a bigger version of the material I'm going to do this evening with you are online in video and audio form through my website. And you should all by now have one of these uh, giant uh, business cards that I've uh, had made up. Um, which uh, will give you references to my website and my Twitter feed and some recommended reading and, and so on, uh, where I look at um, the pre-modern Christian worldview and I look at uh, modern worldviews in terms of modernism and postmodernism. Uh, so we're going to dip our toe into that uh, this evening in a sort of introductory fashion. And I'm going to be doing uh, bits of philosophy, but also combining that with uh, how that philosophy is expressed in culture. 
uh, and to put an emphasis not just on uh, understanding the ideas of uh, someone else's worldview, but also perhaps what uh, it feels like to live within uh, a non-Christian worldview. Uh, of course, um, I'm only going to be dipping our toes in an introductory manner into this, so this is going to be overly simplistic, uh, and I apologise for that. Uh, to begin with, uh, uh, each individual has to be approached on an individual basis, but I hope that I'll give you some useful sort of background knowledge, background tools, ways of thinking about things that will at least uh, guide you in asking questions of your friends and family and colleagues and so on who have different worldviews, different spiritualities uh, than our Christian spirituality. So talking of uh, spirituality, Jesus taught that a true virtuous spirituality begins with loving God, and he's quoting back from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy here, uh, with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. With all of your heart, your, not just how you feel about things, uh, but your attitudes towards things, what you commit to, what you're passionate about. With all of your mind, all of your thinking, including your, your worldview, and with all of your strength, i.e. What, what you do uh, as a consequence. Jesus is really saying, love God with all of yourself, everything that you are. Uh, and this uh, sort of structure of, of our mind and heart and hands, head, heart, hands, to give it its uh, proper Baptist alliterative three points beginning with the same letter, um, is, I think, just a reflection of how God has built human beings to operate, because you will find um, non-Christian writers on spirituality, um, psychologists uh, in the field of, say, um, cognitive behavioural psychology, uh, using this same kind of structure to analyse uh, problems with the human condition. So, a uh, different way of alliterating it here, spirituality, the combination of your assumptions about reality, your attitudes towards reality, and your actions as a consequence. Uh, a spirituality, a way of life, to put it another way, uh, always, I think, aims to be, intends to be, a, a virtuous and integrative way of living. Uh, integrative in, in as much as it wants to pull together these elements of human personhood to integrate them, to bring wholeness uh, to being a person. Uh, it's about how we relate to ourselves, other people, the world around us, whatever we think of as ultimate reality as being, how we relate to reality through this integration of our assumptions and our attitudes and our actions, our head, our heart and our hands. Spirituality becomes a, a feedback loop in someone's life. It's like uh, getting a snowball and running it downhill. If you have certain um, assumptions and beliefs, say you believe that there is a God, you might then take very differing attitudes towards that belief, positive or negative. So you take a, a positive attitudinal response to your belief that there is a God. Uh, that might well lead you to doing 
certain things, uh, adopting certain practices in your life, like uh, attending uh, a Bible study group. Um, but because you do that, your uh, attitudes and uh, assumptions will tend to be reinforced because of those actions that flow out of your head and your heart. And this becomes then a sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop. Um, that's why it is so difficult to get people to change their spirituality, give up their non-Christian spirituality way of living, and become a Christian, or vice versa. It's difficult, because when you ask someone to become a Christian, or start believing in God, or whatever, you're not really just asking them to change their opinion about some way in which they might answer a, a pub quiz question. You know, um, where's the world's largest ball of, ball of a string? Uh, such and such a state in America. You know, what's the, t the world's highest mountain? Is it K2 or Everest? They keep arguing about it. Is there a God? Yes. You know, it's much more important in people's lives than that, whichever way they answer the question. Because these are questions and issues that affect people's hearts, people's habits, the way in which they relate to everything around them, their family, their society, the world they live in. And so unsurprisingly, it takes time to change your way of living. It's not just changing your opinion, although that, of course, can be involved. I talked about spiritual integration. Spirituality, I think, inherently aims to be integrative, but that doesn't mean it's always going to succeed in this goal. You can have spiritual disintegration you can have a way of life that actually ends up pulling a person apart from the inside out, instead of putting them back together. As Augustine, in his uh, famous Confessions, wrote, My sin was this, that I looked for pleasure and beauty and truth, not in him, not in God, but in myself and in his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain and confusion and error. He came to a point of recognizing that he had a disintegrative spirituality, that he was being pulled apart from the inside rather than pulled together. That, that pulling together of the person is something Christians describe in terms of sanctification, of putting on Christ, as Paul talks about, going from glory to glory. So that's a little introduction to the, the concept of a, a spirituality a, as a way of life that's pulling together your head and your hearts and your hands, or at least aiming to, and the fact that, of course, spiritualities can fail uh, to do this. Now, everyone has a spirituality, but they will fill out the head, the heart, the hands in different ways. Some of those ways will overlap with a Christian spirituality. Some will be very much in contradiction to it.
And of course, once upon a time, we as a, as a society, taking the sort of uh, the Western tradition here, looked into what I would call the, the pre-modernistic worldview mirror, you know, like uh, in the Snow White story, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? That is a great worldview question. Like, what is the most beautiful thing in reality? Fantastic question. We ask this question, and in with the pre-modern Christian worldview, we get an answer from our magic worldview mirror, something like this. Well, God is the fairest of them all. God's the maximally beautiful being who created this cosmos. And I use the word advisedly there. Created the cosmos and made humanity in his image only a little lower than the angels. I use cosmos because it comes from the Greek uh, word meaning uh, ordered beauty. That's why we have Cosmopolitan magazine. Okay. Cosmopolitan magazine is a beauty magazine because of the Greek word cosmos. We live in an ordered beauty, a, a work of art created by God in which we live. There are two fundamental elements of a worldview. This is the, uh, the worldview head bit of the spirituality here. And let me introduce you to some scary looking philosophical words philosophers like doing this. Any, any you know, discipline has its specialist language uh, to keep outsiders out and insiders in. Uh, well, actually in philosophy it's more because it's just a very old subject, so a lot of our, our key terms have just come from old languages and they've stuck. And it's very difficult to change them once they've stuck. So we have uh, ontology and epistemology. Ontology from the Greek ontos, meaning what exists. Uh, ontology deals with questions about reality, i.e. what sort of things exist? What sort of things are there? What's this made of? That's ontology. And epistemology deals with questions about how we know things, or what's reasonable, wise to believe. Uh, it comes from the Greek word pistis, which is the word that we translate in our Bibles often as believe or faith. But it, it was a word with a very broad range of meaning. It, it means uh, be convinced, uh, trust, allegiance, commitment, pistis. So how do we uh, commit ourselves to wisely to believing in a certain uh, reality or not? Let me give you a concrete example here. Here we have some coffee. Uh, coffee exists. Okay? With me so far. Coffee exists. We know this via our senses, you might say. We know coffee exists via I can smell it, I can taste it. Uh, with my tongue I can dip my finger in and see how hot it is and so on. But pleasure in drinking coffee also exists. Yes? And how do we know this, though? I, 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 don't, I don't know about my pleasure in drinking the coffee through sticking my finger in my pleasure, or licking my pleasure, or... So how do I, how do I know my pleasure 
in drinking the coffee. I know it through, well, you might say I know it through introspection. I have this kind of internal first-person experience of enjoying drinking the coffee. And I just immediately know that. Uh, so there are some things I seem to, to know in this immediate way that I, I don't know coffee in that sort of immediate way. I come to know it indirectly, you might, you might say, and so on. So um, this could open up whole discussions about is there a difference between the sort of thing that coffee is and the sort of thing that my experience of coffee is? You know, are they two different kinds of thing? Uh, and so on. So we have reality and we have knowledge of reality and there are different ways of knowing things. That's the take-home point here. This is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of... Well, let me not tell you yet, for those who don't know. But what is this really a painting of? What does this, this painting say to you? Before I've even given it a label. What's going on there? In one sense, you might say, oh, well, it's a, it's a portrait of someone, or it's a, it's a picture of a person. Well, yes, but there's something deeper being communicated than, oh, this is what this person looked like, or might have looked like. Feel adventurous and venture. What's your experience of this painting? is well the most exceptional and perhaps therefore interesting thing is the fact that the lady is pointing upwards right it, that is unusual in terms of portraiture pose yes Except it's not a lady. We might come back to that later because I don't want to give the game away. <laughs> it, is, it is fair to say quite an androgynous figure, I think we could say, at the very least. Uh, but it's pointing, he, she, it, pointing upwards. To what? what? What's up there? What's coming from there? Let's put the question that way in the painting, what's coming from up there? Probably the light. The light, okay, yeah, so the, all the light is coming from up there. This is the most significant gesture and everything is illuminated by light. So this painting is saying something important about light. Is the um, character John? Yes. So it's Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist. I have come to bear witness. Who is John the Baptist bearing witness to? The light of the world. Okay. So you get a bit of you have to have a bit of context to interpret art often, but even without any context, you got okay. This is it, it's saying something important about something that's not even in the painting in a sense. The important thing is a transcendent thing, something that transcends the painting, 
but that's coming into the painting from, from outside of the world of the painting and is light, and of course we, light has all sorts of religious connotations, and when you say, oh, John the Baptist, then you immediately go, ah, okay. So within a, a pre-modern Christian culture, you assumed a cosmos of material and immaterial, back to coffee and my experience with the coffee, uh, realities that are created by a transcendent created God, that's ontology, Culture assumes that people made in God's image can have knowledge by various means of both God and the cosmos. And we don't know everything in the same way. There's an appropriate way to know coffee. There's an appropriate way to know your experience of coffee. There's an appropriate way to know about God. There's an appropriate way to know about John the Baptist and so on and so forth. So culture assumes and points to the existence of, of objective, that's discovered rather than invented, values. These, these transcendent, knowable values of truth and goodness and beauty. Okay? That is a beautiful painting. You might not appreciate the beauty of that painting. Maybe you don't get it, as it were. But as someone who gets it, let me assure you that it is there to be got. <laughs> now that's a pre-modern view of beauty. It's not, oh, well, different strokes for different folks. It's not like the same view of beauty as some people today claim to have of morality and which certain postmodern English professors that I could name claim to have of truth or language. You know, it all depends on you. Nothing means anything in and of itself. It means whatever it means to you. I would have English professors at my first university who had this view and would go to great pains to communicate this view to us in their lectures and point to their textbooks where you know, we would have to listen to those lectures and go to those textbooks to understand that they really and truly were trying to communicate to us the idea that language and text don't have any, any inherent meaning and they only mean what they mean to us. <laughs> and if you th begin to think, well, why would I bother going to the lecture or reading the book then? <laughs> That's why I ended up as a philosopher. So, <laughs> and it's important to put that put that background context to see the contrast that culture has been through. And of course, this is not a monolithic change. As I say, in the, in the larger version of this material that you can find from my website, I look at both modernist and postmodernist flavours of the cultural rejection of, of God and the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition. And there are subdivisions within subdivisions, but we've got to start somewhere. So one day, culture turned its back on God and looked into the modernist worldview mirror and asked our fantastic question, who is the fairest of them all? And while well, you will chime with this, because you know what modernism says, modernism says something like this, um, well, according to science, which is the only way to know anything, Man, 
And of course, given the, where the scientific revolution came from and so on, it really does mean man there. Um, man is the fairest of them all. Although, of course, an unverifiable value term like fair is merely an expression of emotion. <laughs> the most rational, this is the important thing, the rational being to have arisen via the blind watchmaker of neo-Darwinian evolution, a child of capital mother, capital nature, who will soon come of age and reject the childish superstitions of religion, entering into the sunlit uplands of the 20th century and all of its genocidal wars and so on. Cheap shot. <laughs> atheism, from the Greek word atheos, two, two Greek words really, a and theos, meaning without, and theos meaning God, or gods, divinity, i.e. God is not among the things that an atheist believes are real, like to ontology. The Cambridge Dictionary defines an atheist as someone who believes that God does not exist. Now, some atheists define atheism as merely a lack of belief in God. Uh, you'll find this debate all over the internet as to what we should mean by atheist. Uh, I'm not making any claims. I don't have to justify my position because I'm not claiming anything. Because I'm an atheist. I just don't believe, I just lack a belief in God. <laughs> but A, this makes cats into atheists. I'm pretty sure that cats lack a belief in God. <laughs> and if you think that they might believe in God, then just substitute your own example. Ants. Ants are atheists because they lack a belief in God. Uh, and B, uh, this fails to distinguish between atheism and agnosticism. The position of saying, well, I, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Uh, but I don't know, or I can't know, or we don't know, or we can't know, or various variations thereupon. So the atheist Kai Nielsen, famous uh, atheist philosopher, uh, says of atheism that in general it's that the critique and denial of metaphysical beliefs in God or spiritual beings. As such, it's, it's usually distinguished from theism, which affirms the reality of the divine, and often seeks to demonstrate its existence. Atheism is also distinguished from agnosticism, which leaves open the question of whether there's a God or not, professing to find the questions unanswered or unanswerable. And of course, uh, this, this is Richard Dawkins' scale from the, his book The God Delusion, pointing out quite rightly, these things come in different levels of belief. You don't have to be 100% convinced of something in order to say that you believe it or that you think you know it. Um, so he has this sort of scale and you kind of sort of have a 50-50 mark in the middle right? it could go either way and you could say oh well I'm 20% I'm, I'm sure that there's a God well I, okay I believe there's a God I'm just not very sure about it but yeah I believe there's a God or yeah I'm, I'm you know I'm 95% or whatever it might be 
Now, atheism also tends to get bundled in because atheism is just like the, the denial that there is a God. But what positively you're affirming, you're affirming that there is a reality and that that reality doesn't include God. But what does that reality include? Well, for most Western atheists, that is a naturalistic or materialistic or physical reality, of course. Naturalism stroke materialism. It's a claim about the sort of things that exist that excludes belief in a God. Reality as a whole is basically an uncreated, it's purposeless, because there's no one who gave it a purpose. It's, it's valueless, it's a closed system, it's a non-intentional system, basically. Atoms uh, aren't trying to achieve any goals. The Big Bang didn't happen in order to X, Y, or Z. It just happened, and so on. So, uh, atheist Alex Rosenberg says, physics is causally closed and causally complete, i.e., physics tells the whole story about everything. <laughs> Alvin Plantinger is a great Christian philosopher from the States, uh, recently won the Templeton Prize. Uh, he says, the basic idea of naturalism, that there's no such person as God or anything at all like him. So first, a naturalist will be an atheist. But not every atheist is a naturalist. So, you know, there are, there, are, there are Buddhists who are atheists, but they're not naturalists because they, they don't even believe in anything physical. The whole physical world is all an illusion, right? We're all part of the one, this ultimate spiritual reality. So they're atheists, but they're not naturalists. Naturalism is stronger than atheism. Uh, in the sense it's possible to be an atheist but non-naturalist, but not possible to be a naturalist but not an atheist. So there's a naturalistic ontology. There's coffee and things like coffee and the stuff that coffee's made out of. Full stop. That's it. <laughs> there's a naturalistic epistemology as well often called scientism. This is why the, the worldview mirror started with, well, according to science, Alec Rosenberg, again, in his, his fantastic book, if you want to give, you know, um, a serious reading uh, non-Christian friend uh, uh, a book to start them thinking really deeply about what do they actually believe, I think one of the best evangelistic tracts available today is probably Alex Rosenberg's book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, because he is an atheist who takes his atheism really seriously and follows, tries to follow it through to the end. And you find out through the, reading his book how difficult <laughs> it is to do that. He says, being scientific just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science is the only way to acquire knowledge. You'll come across this all over the place. I used to come across this all the, the time when I was working in secondary schools uh, with sort of sixth form age, 16, 17 year old kids, particularly boys. And uh, that would be their default assumption. It's a naturalistic epistemology. We, we, we know about coffee through the five senses and 
We know about stars through the five senses augmented through telescopes, and we know about atoms through the five senses augmented by microscopes, and, and so on. So Richard Dawkins puts it this way. He says, all beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, there is proper evidence-based, by which I mean scientific evidence-based beliefs. And on the other hand, stuff that's not. He says in The, the Magic of Reality, which is a, a book for, for kids. He says, the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there's a real evidence that it does. It always comes back to our senses one way or another. So, you know, he's never asked the question or pondered the question about how does he know that he likes coffee? Because he doesn't know that through his senses. But he does know it. But he hasn't thought of this. So, on the other hand, there's the improper methodology. You've got science on one hand. On the other hand, improper methodology of blind faith of course, blind here is a sort of uh, assumed to have to go together with faith. It's not just a modifier. It's like, well, that's faith is automatically blind. That is, it believing in something when there isn't a scrap of evidence. After all, if there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. You see. Um, again, he hasn't done a New Testament Greek study on the range of meanings of the word pistis. Now, of course, this is a hugely problematic view of knowledge. Uh, this sort of scientistic, not scientific, scientific demand basically boils down to saying every rational belief, in order to count as rational any belief I have, must be justified by evidence. But that's self-contradictory because that, that statement of how you reasonably know things in order to reasonably know something, I must have scientific evidence for it. Well, that is not a statement that you can show to be true with any scientific evidence. There's no scientific evidence for it. So it doesn't pass its own test. And it also entails an infinite regress that you can't satisfy. If I say, okay, I, I, I have a belief, A. Um, is this uh, a rational belief for me to hold? Um, well, only if I have some scientific evidence for it. Uh, call uh, the existence of that evidence B. So I believe that there is this scientific evidence and that it supports belief in A. Um, but are those beliefs of mine rational? Um, well, I, only if I have scientific evidence for them. Um, call those C and D. Um, but what about C and D? Are those rational? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I'm, you know, I'm going to be out in the sea drowning <laughs> if I just follow this rule. You can't follow it. And I would just say uh, it's also open to obvious counterexamples like I know that I like coffee. I know that torturing small children just for the fun of it is wrong. I know that Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist is beautiful. And that those aren't things that you can measure with a Geiger counter, etc. <laughs> so Nancy Piercy, in this uh, fantastic um, book, Saving Leonardo, by Nancy Piercy, it's all about 
culture and the ideas behind culture. She's a great Christian uh, writer and in, uh, influenced in the school of uh, Francis Schaeffer. She talks about this separation that results from scientism, a separation of facts from values uh, that might be justified by a materialistic worldview or by a scientific view of knowledge. And this separation of facts from values, is, is, she says, is the key to unlocking the history of modern Western mind. And of course, people have always known that there is a difference, there's a distinction between is and ought. There is some coffee, I ought not to pour it over your head. There's a different kinds of statement. Uh, the descriptive statements and normative statements. But in earlier ages, people thought both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. It's true that that is coffee, and it's true that I ought not to pour it over your head. See? But now, under the influence of materialistic worldview or a scientific view of knowledge, people don't think that. They think the statement about there is coffee is a statement that can be true or false, but the statement about whether or not I should pour it over your head is not a statement that can be either true or false. That's why I said in the worldview mirror expression, it's, that's just, a, just an expression of your emotion or something, it's some sort of non-cognitive thing. Morality becomes reduced away. So bundling all that together, to quote from Rosenberg again, we have, we have a combination of his materialism, his scientism, and you'll see this fact-value divide that comes from, from both of those. He gives this sort of creedal statement towards the beginning of his book, and it goes like this. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? Ontology. What physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immaterial? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Well, everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. I think a very clear, bold expression of an atheistic, materialistic, scientistic worldview. Now people in our culture may not have thought that through in the way that Rosenberg has. They'd, very few of them belong to the atheist, local atheist club where they get together over Saturday morning and you know, sing a hymn to nature, Mother Nature around the, around the piano and recite the Rosenberg Creed or whatever. But they do pick up this worldview sometimes more or less directly through reading books like this, through seeing a YouTube video, seeing a Twitter meme, watching nature documentaries on the BBC, what have you. They just pick it up from the culture around them through the cultural expressions. And by the way, just to add an addendum to this, the, the, the so-called new atheism 
which is uh, 1930s Oxford atheism, is really just materialism plus scientism plus the only new bit is the moral crusade against religious belief, religious faith, primarily because they think faith is automatically blind faith and that's obviously an unreasonable thing. It's bad. It's actually, it's evil to have blind faith because it means, you know, people can convince you to do things like fly aeroplanes into skyscrapers, which is evil. Look at all the evil thing that religious people do. That's why we need to get rid of religion from society because it's evil. And uh, by the way, there's no such thing as good or bad, right and wrong. And nobody has any free will, so they're not responsible for what they do anyway. But the really important thing is that we not become one of those evil religious people. Again, if you're picking up a sense of, hang on a minute, how do those fit together? You're not alone. The interesting question is why they can't see it. <laughs> so here's uh, some song lyrics from the uh, fantastically named Stuart John Woolley Wollstoneholm. Uh, he used to be in a band in the 60s, and I've forgotten the name of it, but uh, he went solo later on in life. And uh, he wrote uh, this song called Blood and Bones uh, after going round um, the infamous Body Works uh, exhibition. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, Body Works is this exhibition of uh, human cadavers uh, in um, various states of preservation, where they sort of uh, plastic injected uh, the, uh, the nervous system or the, the arterial system or whatever, and they have a display of these bodies that have been donated uh, to the cause. In, uh, here we have one in the, the pose of the thinker, and uh, sort of you know, exposing the the brains inside the brain casing and you can see the, the ligaments and so on and everything. Leonardo da Vinci would have been fascinated if he had to cut up bodies on the sly in order to get better at doing art because it was frowned upon back then. But it sort of raises the question, is this, is this all that we are? All, is all that we are this stuff that we can see and touch, that we can know through science? And if so, what is it like to, to really come to terms with that and live in a world like that? I just want to read out the, the lyrics uh, that he wrote for this. And you can kind of see here a sense of... He even borrows some religious language, and towards the end he borrows language from the Latin mass and sort of turns the song into a requiem for the death of the, uh, the old idea of humanity. And you see both a, a longing for what that old pre-modern view of humanity gave us, but a sense of, well, science says, so we've got, you know, you've got to be reasonable and you've got to come to terms with it and live with it. And the interesting question is, is you know, if science is right about that being all we are, we are just these material beings, we aren't half strange material beings who hanker for being more. <laughs> That's sort of an odd thing about us, if the materialists are right. That opens up a whole other discussion. But anyway, here, here are the, the song lyrics. Um, standing on the bridge of sighs and looking down, the water's out. We've had our run, there is no doubt. We're all washed up with the tide. 
still standing on the Bridge of Sighs. Our cash is blown. It's all been spent. In every way, we own the rent. We're all washed up with the tide. Chorus. Seems to me there's more to this than meets the eye. Something more than just the life we're living. Without a soul, we're nothing more than blood and bones. Hanging from the Bridge of Sighs, the whole thing's gone and can't be had. From don't look now, that something bad is all washed out with the tide. Requiem eternum, requiem, requiem. And in the end he just said, well, okay, that's what we are. You've got to live with it, you've got to face it. Because you don't want to have blind faith. And those are the sort of culturally dominant categories, the rails that people are trained to think along. And you see, if you follow those rails, absolutely, that's where you should get to. <laughs> but people find it very hard to question those culturally dominant rails, very hard to see that those, those rails are not made of unanswerable iron. That means you just have to give in and go, go with the cultural flow. That they are, uh, to mix my metaphors, rails made of sand, as it were. That they're rails that you can derail that train of scientism or materialism, maybe just by asking someone the question, well, you think you can only know things that you know through the senses and through scientific means, yeah? Yeah, that's right. I'm a man of science. Like, so you would know that coffee exists, yeah. And you would, you would know that you enjoy drinking coffee. Which of your senses do you know that through? Well, I, I know it by tasting it. No, 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 no. When you taste the coffee, you have the experience of enjoying the taste, but you don't know that you enjoy the taste through taste, do you? <laughs> or those questions about, well, you know, isn't it actually the case? It's all very well, in the, you know, academically in the common room in a debate or whatever, saying, you know, yeah, there's no difference. I'm with Rosenberg. There's no difference between right and wrong. But just you wait till you get them on their favourite political issue or, you know, getting steamed up about the injustice of X, Y or Z. And it's like, hang on, you're getting all steamed up about this as if you thought there was something actually wrong going on. I thought you didn't believe in that. Ooh, they might get angry at you, but that'll just go to prove your point, won't it? <laughs> now, within such a worldview, this is the, the French uh, modernist architect, Le Cubusier, the Quo, uh, who famously uh, called houses machines for living in. Would you like to, to live in a, in a machine for living in? Well, after all, you, you're just a machine, aren't you? You're just a biological machine. And if you're just a biological machine, uh, the society is just a collection of biological machines, why don't we scientifically organise it in a, 
in an efficient manner by having our series of boxes for our biological machines to economically live in, to power the economy of the material production of society. And that seems to be what everything comes to be about. Um, we'll turn the universities into cogwheels within the uh, means of production and so on. We'll focus on the STEM subjects at secondary school because that's how we're going to get the engineers and scientists and mathematicians of tomorrow so that we can continue to have a rising GDP because that's what governance is about. People find it so hard to question those dominant cultural narratives because they're part of people's spirituality. They're reinforced by every advert that you see, every cosmopolitan magazine on the shelf, and so on. But these balloons can be pricked. So we end up with modernist architecture, but even there we have a concession to beauty because it's too ugly just to live in a series of concrete blocks. And we paint some different colours on it in some interesting geometrical shapes because these strange biological machines living in their machines for living in nevertheless have a hankering for beauty. <laughs> the postmodern worldview, very briefly, just a couple of slides on this. We looked into the postmodernist worldview mirror and asked who's the fairest of them all, and it says something like this around Damien Hirst's diamond encrusted skull. Although words only mean whatever they mean to you, well, I'd say that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I'm the fairest of them all, well, then I am the fairest of them all. Um, this is made up of a lot of quotes, actually. That's uh, a quote from Richard Rorty, that one. After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution. Notice the commonality there. Which only cares about what works, which doesn't care about truth any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. This is where the postmodernist points to the modernist and says, you're trying to have your cake and eat it. And I think they're right about that. They say, you, you modernist, you want to hold on to, to science and knowledge and truth. You just want to kick out of the window unverifiable things like good and evil and sin and beauty and ugliness. But actually, <laughs> if you follow through on your I'm just a material thing cobbled together without any intentionality, by the blind watchmaker of evolution through a process that if in inverted commas it cares about anything only cares about what works not what's true any more than what's good or what's beautiful just what works to spread my genetics well then can you really hold on to truth and science as well trouble is that the postmodernist calls the upon the modernist to resolve that dilemma by going more further, more through-going on the rejection of God. Hey, your rejection of God leads you to reject goodness and beauty, and you're trying to hold on to truth, but I don't think you can do that either. So, let's give up on all of it. Rather than, hey, why don't we take a step back here? That's kind of back away. <laughs> back to the pre-modernist. Uh, so, 
we have this sort of evolutionary commonality here. It cares about what works, not what's true, any more than goodness or beauty. And so why should we care about truth? That's a quote from Nietzsche. Why should we care about truth? You've got to keep faith with Darwin and admit we know that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. Again, um, they don't seem to listen to what they're saying, but they do say it, whether or not they can really follow through on believing it. And so, some postmodern art, sorry, postmodern art, what is this art communicating and doing? Contrast this with Leonardo da Vinci's St. John the Baptist. Here is art deliberately designed to make you feel kind of like how would you walk down that corridor without getting unbalanced and walking into the the wall or something. It's, it's, it's trying to unsettle you, uh, trying to take away your reference points and say, question your reference points. Do you really have these fixed reference points? Isn't everything up for grabs now? Uh, as Nietzsche in the parable of the madman says, you know, who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? Is there any up or down left now? Are we not straying through an infinite nothing? Or this, this is really interesting work of art. This is the most uh, recent installation by Damien Hurst. Called, uh, uh, this is uh, the piece called Hydra and Carly from the Treasures of the Wreck of the Unbelievable exhibition from 2017. It's a whole exhibition called the Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable. And what it consists of, you can uh, probably see here, uh, in here we have uh, a photo, and actually has, he has video footage of the divers discovering uh, on the seabed these uh, encrusted fantastic statues from the wreck of the ship, the unbelievable, wink wink, um, and they have uh, dredged up these uh, archaeological finds from the seabed, and here you can see, here is the encrusted uh, form of the statue of uh, the goddess Kali with her many arms fighting the Hydra. Now that's interesting because Kali is an Indian goddess and the Hydra is from Greek mythology. So here we have these you know, elements from two different world mythologies sort of clashing together. Uh, almost as if to say, who cares which story they come from? That's fun. Let's you know, put those together. Um, and there, then we have a reconstruction uh, of what the original statue would have looked like. Uh, so you can see uh, Kali fighting the Hydra uh, in all their glory. Now, of course, all of this is completely made up. He made the statues, had them sunk on the seabed, <laughs> then filmed the divers coming along and taking them up, and so on. Now, it's not an ancient wreck. This is not an archaeological find. Um, it's an art installation. In an age of fake news and, you know, never mind about consistency of what story you're telling in terms of this worldview or that worldview. Well, since we're giving up on all of that, just do what's, just do what's fun. Just tell your story. Uh, if it's, you know, if it's true for you, what fun? <laughs> 
or uh, the Rexner Center for the Performing Arts in, in the States. This is a place where the uh, Indian apologist Ravi Zacharias tells a fantastic anecdote about uh, talking about postmodernism. And he says, postmodernism tells us that there's no such thing as truth, no such thing as meaning inherently, no, no such thing as certainty. I remember lecturing, lecturing at Ohio State University, one of the largest universities in the States, and I was minutes away from beginning my lecture, and my host was driving me past a new building at the time, I think it was built in the, the sort of early 90s probably, called the Rexner Center for the Performing Arts. And he said, uh, this is America's first postmodern building. And I uh, was a bit startled and said, what's, what's the postmodern building? And he said, well, uh, the architect said that he designed the building with no design in mind. It, when the architect was asked, why? He said, well, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design and any meaning? So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built and somebody's paid for it. Of course. So you can see things in, in this, like you've got this sort of, it's like a medieval turret from a castle and it's just it's been split in two. And of course it's not serving any defensive purpose. Uh, it's just made out of solid red bricks and it just kind of split that with the sort of standard glass modernist architecture there. And so it looks a little bit like a medieval castle, but one that someone's come along to and gone, let's <coughs> put some modern bits in there as well. What fun, you see? And yeah, you know, it's a bit fun. Must be a bit annoying if you start up a staircase and then find that it's not going anywhere, but yeah. <laughs> So someone's built this postmodern building. So Zacharias, uh, Zacharias says, so his argument was that if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? And he said, that's correct. And I said, did he do the same with the foundation? <laughs> Here's a sharp cookie. <laughs> you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we'd like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will cool our bluff in a hurry. Uh, and in terms of, of a spirituality, a worldview, you know, it gets progressively harder to consistently live out a worldview the more reality that it's denying. And, you know, it may be one thing to adopt. A worldview that says, okay, we can do science and know stuff empirically and have truth and physics is great and so on. Yay, science. But, you know, all that morality stuff, that's, that's just subjective. Just, you know, go along with whatever your society says. Well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll just go along with what my society says. What about when your society has a debate about whether to change one of the rules or institute a new one or whether you know, some scientific progress means that we can do something that we couldn't before and we have to ask the question as well now, just because we can doesn't mean we should, so should we or not? Um, how do you contribute to that debate? Um, well, I'd like it, 
Um, oh, you wouldn't like it? Oh, let's, let's have a reasoned moral discussion about this. Oh, no, we can't, because morality is not one of those things that you can have a reasonable discussion about, because there's nothing there to discuss. So, I don't know. Who's got the bigger placard? Who can hit the other person harder with their bigger placard? Who can call the other person more names on Twitter? And so on. <laughs> Doug Grudhouse says, Postmodernism is often presented as a radical departure from modernism. It's easy to miss the insight that postmodernism is in many ways modernism gone to seed, carried to its logical conclusion and inev inevitable demise. Um, because postmodernism denies more than modernism, so it's, it's harder to live with. Indeed, some people say it's actually impossible to live with. People can claim to live with it, but they can't actually live with it. Nietzsche, I've mentioned, fantastic to look on on this. I think basically postmodernism ultimately becomes the same thing as, as nihilism. The nihilism that, depending on how you read him, Nietzsche embraced or warned against, or both. It's difficult to read. Uh, nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals, he said. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. It was Nietzsche who gave, I think, the, the greatest one-sentence summary of postmodernism, nihilism, uh, from his book The Gay Science, back when the word gay makes something completely different than it does today. Uh, and he said this, he said, trust has been turned to doubt. Trust has been turned to doubt. It was Nietzsche who said, why should you pay attention to truth? Yeah, skip there. So, let's recap. Spirituality, a way of life, intends to pull you together but it can end up pulling you apart. Your head, your hearts, your hands. We want these to be working in consistency and reinforcing one another. Christians have a Christ-centered spirituality. Other people have a spirituality with different things. Different things in these categories, different things at the center. Culture, by and large, turned its back on God. Try and follow through the consequences of that, first of all, in your worldview, but then that, that works its way out through your heart, through your hands, through the, the culture that you produce, through the songs that you write, through the buildings that you build, through the art exhibitions that you put on, and so on. And of course, that then has a massive effect on people who imbibe those ideas through the culture, through the film, through the adverts, through the magazines, who wouldn't necessarily darken the door of a Waterstones bookshop philosophy section, all one shelf of it. Um, but, and, and people find it very hard to question those culturally dominant ideas. It's easy to get swept, swept along by them if you haven't got an anchor in another view of things. But it is possible to understand people with a different spirituality, to ask them questions about their spirituality, to ask them somewhat leading questions about their spirituality that start perhaps pricking those balloons 
that start pointing out that those rails that they've been following along are perhaps not so solid as they thought. We can ask questions about the implications of a person's atheism or materialism. How those implications seem to contradict our strange innate human desire for things like beauty and meaning and purpose and love and significance and forgiveness and so on and so forth. We can ask questions about what we know and how we know. Isn't scientism too narrow given example X, logic? How do we know logic, not through science? Can we do science without knowing about logic? No. Problem. Uh, morality, beauty, so on. Why, why should we pay attention to truth? Is that just a matter of pragmatic usefulness? And that's it? Really? Isn't scientism self-contradictory? And we can ask questions about what's real. Is the atheist worldview plausible given consciousness, my enjoyment of coffee, as well as my knowledge that coffee exists? My knowledge of purpose and values, contingency, cosmic fine-tuning and so on, we're getting into arguments for God territory now, and so on. There's a whole host of angles that you can come at this at, and sometimes, yeah, it's great to get into a conversation with, with a student, like I was the other day at Trondheim University, about the problem of evil and heaven, or the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. And sometimes it's really good to show someone a film, or a painting, or take them to an exhibition, or, and just ask, what does that make you feel? How does that fit with your worldview? And listen. Um, and you may find interesting things come about of as, a, as a consequence. So as I say, I've dipped our toe into uh, quite a lot of areas, but you've, you've, you've got handouts. This will be recorded. You'll find on my website other recordings of talks and videos of material on this sort of whole area and um, hopefully some of those tools, some of those questions, some of those categories uh, will stand you in good stead in entering into uh, those conversations and into uh, the task of persuasive uh, evangelism. John. Thank you. Okay. Uh, any questions? I think that's going to be a chance for questions. I, uh, time-wise, we may push the do you want to hear something on from tonight? You feel a bit tired, all right? And if you didn't even see it here, it's okay. Just go to YouTube and watch it. I mean, <laughs> my, you know, a friend that you'd like to discuss it with. Mm. We can discuss it afterwards, whatever. So questions about what Peter's just been saying. Anything you want to ask for clarification or any other comments? Does it resonate within your own experience? We've covered some of these grounds in different ways. This brings it together for us. And then fresh by the signal, sir. Anything else? Mm. Well, there's all this blood going to your digestive system. <laughs> 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 it seems to have an after-big name. Could, could I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Please. Yeah. So I haven't really given any consideration before that the atheist, the naturalist, would, would not have any concept of free will. Is that just the idea that they think that there's a chemical reaction at least, another chemical reaction at least, another chemical reaction? So the very right. fact that I chose to ask this question mm, mm. is just because 
millions of years ago a chemical reaction started. Yeah. It's uh, boring as that. Uh, yeah, and ultimately, back back to the beginning of the Big Bang. Yeah. If as Rosenberg says, physics tells the, the the exhaustive story about reality, and the idea of physics is that you you have um, unintentional, non-mental things, atoms and quarks and so on, fundamentally, behaving according to laws of physics. That then they're not behaving intentionally. They're not trying to achieve certain goals. They just, they just behave in the way they do. So, um, you know, when two um, molecules get close enough to each other to be attracted by each other, they're attracted and they bond. So, because of the because of the physics, because of the chemistry. So tie that into. I don't know if they believe in logic, but tie that into why <laughs> Richard Dawkins thinks that with his evangelical atheism, mm. he can change my mind if I don't have free will. So why does he think he can do that? Yeah, I suppose he would just say, well, um, y you will ch by, by uh, entering into conversation with you or writing a book or whatever, your reading of that book is a physical process. And um, that physical process has been known to cause changes in people's brains such that they say they no longer believe in God uh, and so on. So he would, he would say, yeah, of course, you, you believe in God at the moment, read my book, hopefully it'll, it'll, it, w it will change your mind, as it were. Your mind will be changed. Um, I might say in a sort of um, loose way of speaking, you will change your mind. Um, but I don't really mean that, that's just a loose way of speaking. It's, it, everything is explicable by material processes behaving according to material laws. Material things don't have any free will. They just obey the laws of physics. You are just a material thing, therefore you don't have any free will. Um, simple well, as that. You can't possibly think that it matters. No. Oh no. I mean, that's right. He says there is. No meaning, no purpose, no good, no bad, just blind, pitiless indifference. Spend my life trying to change your mind, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Is that true? Right. Yeah. So he would say, well, it matters to me. <laughs> you, know, I f you know, I find significance and, and so on in this. But as a, as a grand claim about, you know, it really does matter, or, you know, objectively mattering, you know, say, no, no, nothing objectively matters has a point, etc. All there is, is our own subjective experience of, of my life, and I happen to like living this way, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that really boils down to um, my evolutionary history has predisposed me to want to combine my genetics with your genetics and uh, in order to facilitate that uh, my our evolutionary history has fobbed off on us through various chemical reactions in our brains a feeling that we love one another um, full stop okay, I can see how that <laughs> Adults, but <laughs> what that sacrificial love that a mother has for 
routine? Yes, well, you see, the, the, the mother has a lot invested in the, in the genetics of, uh, in her children because human beings are just uh, meat robots designed for spreading genetics from Richard Dawkins' point of view. So uh, the mother's genetics, its chance of living on and spreading is in the survival of the children. Uh, but not other people's children so much. I mean, the less related you are to someone, um, the less plausible it is to think that you ought to sacrifice your, yourself for them, basically. But people do. It's, it's one of the much discussed questions of whether you can have a so, some sort of socio-biological explanation for, for acts of self-sacrifice when on a purely sort of genetic view it, it seems to make sense that you sacrifice for those closely genetically related to you, particularly children, but not for those who are not genetically related to you. Um, but there's a whole literature on that, uh, that kind of argument. Um, and as to whether you can explain that or not, say, and I'm not an expert on that literature, but yeah, I mean, you're asking, right, and basically any, any facet of human life that seems to be really significant and to matter to us, Dawkins and Israel will say, yeah, well, it, it matters to us, full stop, so it matters subjectively, but it, it doesn't really matter. It might seem to really matter to you, but that that is just an appearance. The reality is that nothing really matters, um, except when he forgets that and wants things to really matter so that he can criticize religious people doing bad things. That's kind of the taking with one hand, giving with the other problem that I've pointed out a few times, yeah. Um, so, of, of course, you know, he, he loves his wife and finds it a meaningful relationship and would, you know, give of himself for her and, and, and so on. But the story that he tells himself about what's really going on there does seem to be a story, as you're indicating, that, that's kind of intention. <laughs> um, it, it, it does basically seem to involve telling, telling yourself, I, I've been a victim of a conspiracy, a sort of evolutionary conspiracy. <laughs> Um, I've had to see through the, illusion, the illusions of the natural sort of religious viewpoint to come to this view, yeah. In, in the view of that way, would he think, how would he deal with the fact that people, although they grow older and are then less invested in some biological evolutionary thing, they could become more invested in commitment to each other and would sacrifice for each other? It seems to be counter to his thinking. Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it does seem to be, and uh, as I say, it's a, a difficult and long-winded discussion. Um, and I, 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 I say, I, I think all I can say is I'm, I'm not an expert on, on that literature, but it, it's it's the socio-biological discussion of altruism um, and evolutionary explanations of altruism, and. Um, uh, it does seem that the, the sort of commonsensical position on the, on the evolutionary view is, is to, to link closeness of genetic relatedness with altruistic investment. Uh, but then maybe you, you, you end up sort of arguing maybe some sort of um, s social 
spin-off benefit if you happen to have people who would sacrifice themselves even for people who weren't genetically related to them um, they would say sacrifice themselves for um, less you know more distantly related members of the tribe maybe that tribe would outsurvive other tribes who didn't have that sort of mutational attitude towards things uh, and because you know you're, you're looking after a wider group of people those other people are reciprocal mm. to it and therefore that tribe tends to survive better and then so it's a sort of indirect it's like well directly speaking yeah you wouldn't but it, you get an indirect benefit from doing it um, and therefore maybe maybe that's what happened but uh, as with many of these evolutionary what have been called just so stories it's it's one thing to come up with a well supposing this happened uh, and you know that and and that proved to be a benefit and and so behaving like this spread um, it's very hard to go from that to actually showing that that is what happened and that it was beneficial yeah. because you can't run the experiment again <laughs> uh, and so on and actually maybe you can come up with multiple stories that end up with the same behavior for different reasons and so who knows which if any of them is the real one <laughs> um, so it's it, it, that's why the conversation gets bogged down so much in are we just telling fairy stories here do, do, you know Roger Kipling's just so stories um, and that was that was a, a criticism of that whole field that was put by um, the evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould coin union saying oh you're just telling just so stories so yeah that's the kind of where the discussion goes. Why is it that so much of the, the three views that you outlined and think of the development mm. have actually come from essentially Christian history? Mm. In other words, they, they are basically, well, when I, when I postulate that they're basically Western, that mm. demonstrates my ignorance that there may be others that didn't come from any of the Western. Uh, but, it, but it does seem that so many of the implicit um, assumptions and assumptions also are way about the way that mm. society works, even though that society may, in its thinking, have rejected Christian heritage. Mm. Nonetheless, that is still where it originates. Yeah, yeah, so it's interesting that um, Dr. Richard Dawkins, he, he will call himself, I'm an Anglican atheist. I'll say, that's, that's, my, that's my cultural background and upbringing, and that's the kind of belief in God that primarily I've reacted against. Um, in itself, it's purely, purely relativism, because it's not actually reacting against others. I mean, mm. had, had he been brought up a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Confucian or whatever, would he actually yeah. even have come to the same conclusions? Right, so the, the particular beloved of new atheists know if you'd been born in India, you'd be a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever, you're probably not a Christian, wouldn't you? So how do you, you know, justify being, you can ask exactly the same question back. Um, Part of this comes because I was, I was deliberately focusing on the West. I just dropped a, in a mention of Buddhism, but that was it. But also, um, 
historians of ideas have, have in recent decades come to see that the you know the enlightenment was a much more complicated thing than it used to be portrayed as kind of used to be portrayed as you had you had the christian sort of medieval christian west christendom and then you had the enlightenment you know, the rediscovery of uh, ancient greek thinking preserved through the dark ages i mean that's a sort of pejorative label in and of itself the dark ages preserved by in the sort of muslim manuscript tradition and uh, then you get the the flourishing of the renaissance and then into the enlightenment uh, where we sort of uh, we grow up and we we discover science and so on that that is that's a piece of propaganda put about by atheist historians basically um, now we know it was much more complicated than that and, and scholars of the, don't talk about the enlightenment but the enlightenments there were there was it took different forms in, in different sort of cultural situations there was a christian enlightenment there were, uh, humanism started out as a christian humanist movement with people like erasmus and so on um, so um, yes there was a rediscovery of, of sort of greek and humanist sort of thought coming out of that but some of that humanism is christian humanism a lot of the leading thinkers of the enlightenment when you start listing them you start thinking hey a minute they're like christians or at least theists they're like bishop berkeley and kant and isaac newton and pascal and on and on it goes <laughs> like they are christians how you how how you managed to paint this movement intellectual movement as a sort of inherently anti-religious thing well that's because yeah like the french enlightenment was against the the uh, collaboration between the state church and the and the kings and they wanted to overthrow the kings and the, overthrow the church in the same process um and wanted to set up you know turn notre dame cathedral into a, a cathedral of the enlightenment and they they uh, killed all the priests and take take a uh female figure and draped her in a robe and called her the goddess enlightenment and stood her on the altar and let's have like religious ceremonies to the enlightenment goddess of reason sort of a bit of an odd <laughs> way of approaching it you might think now but so it, it had multiple faces uh not just one sort of monolithic thing but of course they're they're reacting against that cultural background of, of the pre-modern christian worldview um. But, it, but it is interesting that people who hold these views thoughtfully mm. still find it basically impossible to live by them. Yeah. And if, I mean, admittedly, with justification, that is also a criticism that they make mm. of us about our practice mm. often. But in terms of logical consistency, I, I, I have a big problem with saying, you know, just look at your history and see how you live and why you want to live like that and why you don't want to live a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's not just pointing to, like the New Atheist, to sort of, look, here are examples of religious people doing bad things, therefore religion is bad. Or It's not doing the reverse of that sort of ad hominem argument. It's pointing to, as you say, look how these worldviews and the associated spiritualities, how they work out in people's lives and express themselves in the culture in ways that help you understand those inner tensions, 
within that worldview. The way in which the more that you try and consistently push through with the rejection of God, the further you get pushed towards a sort of nihilistic postmodernism. That the postmodernists have actually got something right in their critique of the modernists. But unfortunately, rather than saying, okay, well, let's, let's go back the way we came, they say, well, let's push forward into the swamp of despair. <laughs> um, so you can actually use that, that conversation between the, the two sort of warring halves of modernity, modernity and postmodernity, as it were, to facilitate, to help people to think more about, actually, maybe there's a, maybe a plague on both your houses is the right reaction here. Maybe there's a whole other way of going, another way that, that leads to a spirituality that is internally consistent, that does... Uh, that is integrative, that um, that draws you uh, together rather than inherently pulling you apart. Where the failure to live consistently with it is a moral failure, uh, rather than an inherent in, 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 in sort of in, in, impossibility on the philosophical level, as we see within those uh, modernist and postmodernistic worldviews. Yeah.